0: This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. And if listening is an act of love, as some have said, then storytelling could be the first step to resolving many conflicts. On this episode of Peace Talks Radio, correspondent Sarah Holtz speaks to three storytellers who lift up the voices of individuals who share a goal of promoting peace within their own communities. We begin with Tanika Lewis-Johnson. In 2017, Tanika began taking photographs of residents on the north and south sides of Chicago in an effort to portray the city's segregation. Those photographs sparked dialogues between the residents and Tanika's work became The Folded Map Project, a community storytelling series that confronts systemic inequalities through peaceful discussion.
1: The conversations to me served as a great model for the larger public to understand how simple yet awkward these conversations can be because just asking someone, how did you come to live in your neighborhood really gets to the heart of the issue of segregation and how people, regardless if they're on the beneficiary end of, you know, segregation or Part of the group who's most negatively impacted by it.
2: Yeah, and could you explain for us what it means for two people to be map twins?
1: You know, they are map twins because if you were to fold Chicago's map at its zero point, which is downtown Chicago, because Chicago is on a unique recticular grid. The neighborhoods that would touch my home neighborhood of Inglewood are those north side neighborhoods of Edgewater, Rogers Park, and Andersonville. So that is why they're MAP twins, and that is how the MAP folds, by having those MAP twins actually meet and talk to each other, which is something that segregation prevents from happening.
2: Right. And it seems like through this process, you also learned more about how neighborhoods get so stratified and... How this all leads us back to these systemic inequalities, like segregation,
1: everyone was directed into certain neighborhoods, whether it's because of finances or, you know, prioritizing certain neighborhood needs. No resident really has truly picked a neighborhood based off of, you know, everything being equal. And so their conversations really, revealed how historic segregation and discriminatory housing practices have impacted our decisions that we make today regarding where we want to live, where we should live, where we can live, how people influence us to not move into certain neighborhoods, how your finances dictate where you actually can live. And so... Uh, racism underscores all of those decisions and their conversations reveal that. And all of the MAP twins ultimately had an aha moment on camera with each other. And it's just very interesting to watch how their facial expressions, their, their body gestures suggest that they were becoming aware of that aha moment. And a lot of the MAP twins have remained in contact with each other, but they're definitely interesting conversations for sure.
2: So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the Folded Map Project came about in the first place.
1: The project idea for Folded Map started as a seed of an idea when I was in high school as a freshman, a 13, 14-year-old who had to commute from um, my Southside Inglewood neighborhood, 15 miles north to go to high school. And I went to Lane Tech High School. And it was on that daily commute that I started to really see the difference between how my neighborhood looked and the neighborhood that my high school was in. And in addition to those observations, of how my neighborhood had vacant lots, abandoned homes, liquor stores, and the neighborhood my high school was in was in didn't have those things. They had cafes, boutiques, uh, no vacant lots, all the homes were lived in. That kind of stuck with me. And the primary thing that I was introduced to was the fact that the streets that existed in my neighborhood also existed in the neighborhood that my high school was in, 15 miles north. And... I just thought that was fascinating because I would ride the train and I would think like, oh my gosh, like Ashland Street does not look like this in Inglewood. Walcott, Polina don't look like this in Inglewood. And that just stuck with me. And so that's when the the seed of the idea was was born. And it pretty much took the rest of my life after that to really understand and learn and figure out how what I was observing impacted my daily life today. And it ultimately came down to me understanding that it was due to historic racism and segregation.
2: So our show centers around nonviolent conflict resolution, and it seems like these conversations between the MAP twins Are kind of a perfect example of that. But I'm wondering did conflicts ever come up that you saw and how did you see them get resolved?
1: It wasn't even really conflict, it was more so being introduced to a different perspective. It was literally people sharing their perspective of their neighborhood with each other. And everyone self selected to participate. So they were open for this kind of possible conversation anyway. And there was really no resolution necessary because the ultimate resolution that occurred was the listening. And when you listen to someone who you're visiting, you know, going to their house to talk to, you are naturally kind of disarmed and it allows for you to become empathetic in a way that you wouldn't listening to a news report or reading some report about disparity and segregation, like being face to face with someone in their neighborhood, in their home, describing to you why they like their neighborhood, the issues with their neighborhood, or not even having those answers. Um it just provides an opportunity for a different kind of understanding or awareness that really isn't a conflict. And so all of their conversations, you know, reflected that there were questions that were obviously interesting and difficult for some to answer. Um, People made mistakes trying to verbalize their preference for certain things in their neighborhood. And in any other setting, it could have been offensive. But in order to even learn how to talk about this, you're going to make the ultimately infantile mistakes of saying things wrong. But everyone was open to being corrected. And so that's the space, I think, um, folded map offered for people who were really interested in having this discussion and amplifying the complexities of talking about segregation and disparity to people who have a different lived experience than your own.
2: Yeah, and I also know that the Folded Map project ultimately inspired a stage play. How did that happen?
1: Oh, yes. I think theater is such a powerful medium. And the beauty of Chicago (laughs) is that we are a strong theater city. Like, even though that is not the artistic medium that I follow, I am aware of it as a powerful and strong uh, community in Chicago. And so... The Folded Map being transformed into a stage play uh, for me is also another beautiful example of what happens when you connect with people who you might not think that you will connect with (laughs) Um, because the only reason that the Folded Map was, was transformed into a stage play is because one of the Folded Map participants, one of the map twins, her name is Bridget O'Shaughnessy, her and I became friends during the course of her participating in Folded Map. And she does theater, she does, uh, she writes scripts, she does what you, I guess what you would call social justice theater. And she was the one that mentioned to me that it would easily translate into a powerful stage play. And so I love to refer to the play as another demonstration and example of when you connect with people that you might not have otherwise, when you focus on a passion that you share with someone, whether it's the arts, whether it's, you know, another industry you all have in common. But when you pursue a shared passion and let that guide um, a friendship or a relationship, uh, regardless of racial divides or geographic divides, you can create and learn something beautiful. And so um, the play really is a explanation as to how I created Folded Map, walking people through the origin of the project from when I was a young girl to going to high school up until the very moment that I met the first Map Twin. And then it goes into um, a scene of me explaining my Folded Map project to the first Map Twin and her agreeing to say, yes, she would meet another Inglewood resident. So it really amplified the origin of the project, which you know, I have come to learn is really important because oftentimes when I am interviewed about Folded Map, the question, just like you asked in the beginning, comes up, how did you create it? How did you even think of it? And I was asked that so often that the map twin Bridget was like, it would be really great for you to create a story, a play, a narrative around how Folded Map is, you know, ultimately what I always said is the embodiment of, of my lived experience in Chicago. And it just so happened that my lived experience in Chicago that led to the observations to create Folded Map are the same observations and experiences of majority of black people in Chicago. How we uh, are thrusted into communities that are unfamiliar to us because we have to access them for resources, whether it's education, jobs, food, social service, whatever. We are introduced into the understanding of that disparity a lot earlier than other races in Chicago. And so the story of Folded Map's origin um, is a testament to that. And so that's how it got created, really just through the friendship of um, a map twin.
2: Are there any updates that you'd like to share with folks about the Folded Map project and how it's continuing during the pandemic?
1: Well, I do want to let people know that during the pandemic, um, I launched the Folded Map Action Kit, which is a wonderful, actionable way for people to continue to engage and learn about how to disrupt segregation through the lens of folded map. But what it is, it's a a, a toolkit guiding people on how to identify a neighborhood that's their map twin, and then giving them a list of errands to run in their map twin neighborhood, as well as share back their experience on the Folded Map website through a submission form. And what the Action Kit aims to do is not only help people get into different neighborhoods, but to do so in a way that won't be clouded by the misperceptions that we have all been programmed to have of other neighborhoods. Um, Because as, as a photographer, I'm well aware that what you're programmed to pay attention to is what you will pay attention to. And you can go into another neighborhood to volunteer or to go to a restaurant, but what you've look at along the way is informed by what you've been told or exposed to. And so I really wanted to provide a way for people to remove that, those misperceptions, those uh, stereotypes, by giving them an errand to run, because it's something we all do. It doesn't matter where you're from, what class you are, what how different your lived experience. Are. You have errands you have to run, and what better way to understand what a neighborhood is like for a specific resident than to run errands in it? And it's not just oh, the action kit is for northsiders to come to the southsiders south side. It's also for southsiders to do it in north side neighborhoods to understand the obscene convenience that resources have been poured into those Northside neighborhoods that make living um, so much more easier and convenient. And through experiencing that, you can then return to your neighborhood informed of what you're entitled to. You know, you have a reference to say, I want and need this in my community. Um, you'll be able to advocate for it in in a different way.
2: Yeah, I think that's great. And I think it's so important right now, um, as we are so isolated just by how we're spending our days, um, that you're providing this opportunity to engage folks um, on this very deep and personal level.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, Yeah, I think it's a level that is required now because it's very clear that litigation policy laws protests alone haven't gotten us to where we want it to be and for me the missing ingredient to make all of those other critical ways to to make change in a society protests laws policy would be more impactful if we included the personal aspect if we amplify the movements of solidarity across racial lines that have occurred throughout history, if we look at those as possibilities of how we can make change for the future and really understand that populations don't just have to live separately and vote their way out of you know, an inequitable city, state, or country. It means more when you connect with others and you become more empathetic, you become more aware, you become more knowledgeable, you become more understanding, and you figure out ways to disrupt these large systemic issues in your own personal life. And those things are important. Those things are what contribute to Movements. Those things are what contribute to you meeting other people that you might not meet because of segregation, that you could actually have a wonderful friendship or connection and relationship to. And all of those things are necessary if we want to advocate for those who are most negatively impacted by our country's inequity. And there are people who are privileged that care. You know, and there are people who are most negatively impacted by segregation that have solutions, but just don't have the platform to amplify those solutions. And that's why connecting across racial and geographic and class divides are important, because there are people in each of those divides that could work well together. And that's what we need for change.
0: You can hear more from Tanika Lewis-Johnson, founder of the Folded Map Project in Chicago, in the complete conversation Sarah Holtz had with her at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for our March 2021 episode. Next, an artist and human rights defender working to improve things in the San Francisco Bay Area when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with this program and hundreds of others at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Sarah Holtz. Next, Sarah speaks to an artist and human rights defender named Adriana Camarina. Adriana tells stories about the connection between police brutality and gentrification in the Mission District of San Francisco. She also leverages her legal background to support community members facing discrimination and other injustices. Adriana calls this process accompaniment.
3: I am by training an attorney, uh, a Mexican attorney. I don't practice here in the U.S., but I do use my legal background in various ways, and one of them I have found is to do this community work of accompanying families that have a lot of gaps in their ability to engage institutions, such as, um, in this case, trying to engage supervisors or lawyers or the DA and trying to understand how this justice system works here. And this is, for me, particularly important with a population like the Mayan community or first generation immigrants where they already probably, because they got here
2: were probably highly discriminated in their homeland as well. And, um, related to that accompaniment, you wrote a story called threading the life of a Mayan. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about that story.
3: I was already involved in anti-police brutality work because I had worked with the family of Alex Nieto. Um, and two years after Alex Nieto was murdered, uh, Luis Pat, a Mayan indigenous man who was homeless at the time, was killed on shop and 19 streets in the mission. And as I tend to do in these cases, I attended the town hall meeting that is mandatory um, that the police have in the 10 days after the shooting. And there I met a friend of um, the family, of Luis's family, and he introduced me to their family. And this uh, narrative, uh, Threading the Life of the Mayan, tries to do precisely that, to thread back the history of who was Luis Congorapat. And I, I, the name comes also from a conversation I had, and I relate in one of my first pieces with a day laborer on Mission Street who told me that migration was like a thread, that one person pulls in uh, the next one and the next one pulls in another one and another one, right? And so I, you can trace the threading the life of a Mayan to that first tug on the migration um, thread, uh, but then I threaded back to try to understand who was back home, and this is I think one of my favorite parts of the about the storytelling um, that I do, which is that the stories take me elsewhere, and so I went back to the Yucatan to around Day of the Dead to meet up with his family to meet his uh, Luis's parents, um, and his wife, and his children, and his extended family, and tried to support them also to understand how they wanted to carry this justice cause, even though they were far away.
2: Thank you for sharing that. And um, I'm wondering, for those who have never been to San Francisco, could you describe the Mission District?
3: Ah, that's a good task. The Mission District... Uh, is a valley for the most part, although traditionally it extends um, towards Bernal Hill towards the south and up towards Twin Peaks on the west. And once upon a time, long time ago, towards the east, east and north, it would flow down into a river and then out into the San Francisco Bay. And um, in terms of its sense of place, uh, you have... A lot of history, as its mission and as its name implies, the mission, and it was the original Spanish mission from 1776, and um, originally it was it was near the village of Chutui of the Yalimo Raimatush Aloni uh, people, and it also after the 50s, 60s, with a changing immigrant working class population, it took on a decisive demographic of incoming populations from Latin America, uh, people coming in from the fields who uh, are of Mexican descent, but also a lot of people of Central American descendancy. And even through the gold rush, there already was a very large population of of, uh, people from South America, even Peruvian miners and Chilean miners. Uh, after the 50s, 60s, uh, it became pretty much known as the uh, Latino Barrio of San Francisco, although it was very multicultural, multigenerational. So the street signs even today um, carry that history as you go down a shop called La Gallinita or you pass by uh, the local newspaper called El Tecolote. And so one of the efforts right now is to create those historical Latino district. Uh, cultural corridors to retain this history.
2: Could you talk about the altar that you helped to create for Alex Nieto, um, the young man who was killed at the hands of the police in 2014 in San Francisco?
3: So um, I am from time to time attracted to figuring out what other ways to talk about a story um, that engages people Differently, perhaps even more emotionally, um, and also Elvira and Refugio, they have been manual laborers all uh, laborers all their life, and so they have a very good instinct about materials, and and so I I wanted to work on this installation, and I have to say that this is the mission has been an influence on me in this regard because the tradition of setting up Day of the Dead altars is so strong and powerful that it invites you to think carefully about how you are establishing, you know, an altar and, uh, and do it so creatively. And we created a video and that was with Yvonne Iriondo. And that video was shown on a small kind of old TV. And we cr- recreated a living room. For the installation, and that living room was soliciting the fact that Alex Nieto actually his his bedroom was the family living room, and in that space we brought out um, his uniform, his uh, night guard uniform that he was wearing when he when he was killed by the police, and some other beloved artifacts. We a storytelling, but also we brought out his. Grape site, I brought rocks from Bernal Hill <laughs> and put them in installation to create, uh, similar to the what you find in the hill even today, a community um, altar for Alex that is built on rocks and crosses and flowers and mementos. And together, that created an environment of being in the living room and the parents. I, I took a photo of Elvira and Refugio after we installed, just sitting there and they're looking at the TV with this, the same narrative that they helped create around Alex and the shooting, but they're also in their living room. And so I think that's very poignant of what these families l- live with. You know, they, they go back home and they have these spaces where their beloved family member used to interact with them.
2: Wow. And um, how did your collection of essays, Unsettled, come about? I should start by saying that
3: I'm a newcomer to the mission, I arrived in 2007 to San Francisco, 2008 to the Mission District. And before then, I had lived in the in South Bay and I had been back and forth all my life between the US and Mexico. But when I arrived here in, in San Francisco or into the Mission in 2008, it's when I realized that I was here to stay. And so it was a moment of rethinking who, who I was in this place. And realizing that this was an immigrant community, but my compatriots, Mexican compatriots, but also the other populations in the mission were ethnically different from me. And we had class differences also. And so my original project was born out of curiosity of trying to figure out who I was in in this place that I come to live in. And that meant talking to my neighbors. And so I started uh, meeting people who stand on corners, the homegirls and homeboys in the mission, the day laborers looking for work, and uh, other people who I would just randomly meet. And, and their stories fascinated me and told me a history of uh, of the mission and ongoing documentation of its history, even as people were facing very harsh uh, realities of gentrification, uh, very unjust evictions, prices trending up in the stores around them, of having to relocate, and meanwhile dealing with a lot of social justice issues like police brutality and, and criminalization, especially uh, the younger generations. So that, that intrigued me and I realized that it was an experience that I wanted to understand. And that's how the project started. And then I started documenting histories and and have been doing so for a decade now.
2: Amazing. And I'm curious, in what ways has your work changed during the pandemic? You
3: must be aware that during COVID, um, the most disproportionately impacted community in San Francisco has been the Latinx community. Um, it represents about 15% of the population in San Francisco. Uh, but it accounts for, at different moments, over 50% of the cases, up to 64% of all new cases in different moments. And uh, it possibly higher because at one point, uh, we accounted for 84% of all COVID-19 hospitalizations. So what you have here is... Um, and multi-generational Latino families already intermixed with newcomers through the gentrification period of the last kind of ongoing 30 years or more but really which peaked around um, 10 say 10 years ago uh, but it is this population that has been heavily impacted there are still a lot of people who are first generation uh, immigrant uh, Latinx people um, many of them indigenous people and so what you've seen, and through the pandemic is a lot of a lot of suffering you have a lot of people who have no no resources to shelter in place they must go out and find work or already were essential workers and I just saw um, a story that says that um, the most impacted uh, industries the most the deadliest industries during the pandemic have been the agricultural industries and the restaurant industries and a lot of um uh, People of with origin or heritage in Latin America and the Caribbean work in the restaurant industry here in San Francisco. So it has been very hard. If you go down by Alabama um, and Nineteenth Street, there's a little there's a food hub, uh, a food pantry that was created specific for the mission during the pandemic, and the lines really spread out. Sometimes ten blocks. To, to across the neighborhood for people coming in for a, a free box of food. Um, so it's been, it's been difficult to watch, and there are different levels of outreach um, and, and accessibility to information that people have, and even, as I said, just capacity. Um, they don't have resources to stay at home. So it's been hard on the heart to walk around the mission and see that people are just simply doing the best they can.
2: Yeah, that's for sure and i I'm thinking about these different forms of grassroots support, and how your work um accompanying families kind of ties into that and ties into how a community can begin to heal in a way my My
3: intent in accompanying the families is so that they feel first of all, accompany that they're not alone, that they don't have to do this alone, that they because they probably still have to go back to work and they have to take care of their grandchildren. And that we can walk this together. And uh, another thing that I'm always interested in is helping doing things that help heal their trauma. And this might happen in different ways. This might be because they want to they're invited to and they want to join in a big direct action. You no, know? and sometimes seeing how many people show up for you and try to share that story with you is intense and memorable and and fills you with, with courage, right? Uh, There are other more intimate moments like creating that altar with the Nietos, which I also have to say Elvira was so proud of it. So proud of it because Alex Nieto was a young man involved in his community and he loved Chicano art and Chicano art culture and the culture of the mission. So for her to be able to do that for her son was special and memorable. I think about it honestly as a little grain of uh, a sand that we're just tossing into a pile. But as we saw this year, in the middle of the pandemic, with the rise ups um, around the George Floyd killing, it was it was the drop that spilled the glass, right? And so I think that's
2: uh, if you can call that peacemaking, <laughs> that's part of what I do. Yeah, and I think the storytelling element of your work is so important too. Yeah, and I think
3: in in that regard, I, I think what we're also trying to create is opportunity. Um, I what I, One of the things that I learned from the Alex Nieto case and accompanying his family was that we might not win the legal case, but we will win the story. And it's important to win the story because then you create opportunities. But just this uh, last week, we... Uh, a collective of organizations work to put together a series of recommendations to the city about alternative responses compassionate alternative responses to homelessness where you take police out of the picture and and we're suggesting recommending that a new group a nonprofit based new group be, be created uh, to respond to specific situations where the police have no business attending unhoused people. So that's um, that's some that an opportunity that was created through a lot of work, not just our own, but a lot of work around uh, homelessness-related issues, housing issues, anti-police brutality, and absolutely working off of that mo- moment in, in, in the past year, uh, when people rose up to demand uh, a different type of response to conflict in society.
0: That was Adriana Camarina, a San Francisco Bay Area artist and human rights defender. Her community journalism series is called Unsettled in the Mission. You can hear more from her in the complete conversation Sarah Holtz had with her at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for our March 2021 episode. After a quick break, we're back with a Florida podcaster and social worker trying to support and possibly gain release for innocent prisoners or those serving overly long jail sentences. That's next up on Peace Talks Radio. tuned to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. We have hundreds of other episodes for you to check out, either online at our own website, peacetalksradio.com, that's peacetalksradio.com, or virtually anywhere you get your podcasts. Just search for Peace Talks Radio. The programs are all free on those platforms, so check them out and earn your own non-official peace studies degree by listening to as many as you like. Today, Sarah Holtz is having conversations with women who are applying their artistic and academic and storytelling skills to help achieve social justice where they live. We conclude our show with Harriet Hendel. She teaches restorative justice and hosts a podcast called Pursuing Justice for the Innocence Project of Florida. As part of her educational work, Harriet has mentored many incarcerated individuals serving long sentences. To begin the conversation, Sarah asked Harriet, how this work began for her. It began way back in the
4: 70s when I took my master's in learning disabilities and discovered that the rate of illiteracy in prisons is so very, very high. Begins in juvie. Um, They come in with an inability to read or a disability where they were never taught properly to read because of their disability, their handicap. And so it begins there and then winds its way through adult prisons. So I promised myself then that if there was an opportunity sometime later on that I would take my skills into a prison the opportunity never arose until 2006. So that was a long space in between my master's and then. And I ended up living literally around the corner from a maximum security prison for 2,400 men.
2: Wow. And was it difficult to convince the prison administration to let you start teaching there? How'd you do that?
4: I called and asked the warden if I could come and volunteer. They weren't all that eager to have me there because I think the teachers were a little threatened by me. I don't know why, Um, but eventually, after pushing for almost a year, they said, okay, you can come and teach. And so that, I think, is the beginning of this journey, which was very different from just being a teacher of children who had learning problems for 30 years. And so I ended up teaching 20 men in each class, uh, three classes each morning. I was there three days a week. And it was so rewarding to me to work with them. And what I was actually doing was helping them pass the essay portion of the GED. And my approach to them was to read to them out loud excerpts from books I felt they would be able to relate to. And because most of the men sitting in front of me were African-American, I chose things like Obama's book, Dreams from My Father, Henry Louis Gates' book, all memoirs. And the reason for that is because I wanted them to understand that the pain that they were carrying around, and all of them had a story, could be used in a positive way. And along the way, I discovered a book that was edited by the author Wally Lamb. And the book was written by the women in a women's prison in Connecticut. These were stories and poems, and I thought they might like some of those. And I read a story by a young woman named Robin Ledbetter. The men loved her story so much, they encouraged me to write to her. And I said, well, but I already wrote to Wally Lamb and told him what a great job he did with the women because he was running a writing class, kind of like what I was doing. And they said, no, no, that isn't what we asked you. We asked you to write to Robin herself and tell her that we loved her story. So they shamed me into it, and that is exactly what I did. And then I waited four months until Robin answered me. And the reason that she didn't is she had just tried to hang herself in the shower and end her life. Robin had come into prison at 14 and was given a 50 year sentence, no parole, meaning that she would be up for parole at age 64, not a day before. But because of Brian Stevenson's attempts at changing the way we treat juveniles and the kind of sentencing we give them, things changed over time. And those sentences are no longer constitutional. So uh, we ended up going to see Robin eventually when she she kind of came through a a very major depression and said she would like to meet us. And we drove three hours up to her prison and continued to visit her for the last 11 years. So we kind of adopted her. So as a result of that story of hers, um, we established a wonderful, wonderful connection to her. Um, And she is now uh, waiting for released by the parole board in Connecticut, and she has served 25 years of that original sentence.
2: That's unbelievable. And I know from when you and I first spoke over the phone that Robin's involved in a program at her prison that sort of models itself after some prisons in Germany, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that.
4: Uh, We learned that her prison was doing a, an experimental program for 18 to 24-year-old women. Uh, and the approach was based on Germany's prisons, which the governor of Connecticut had gone to see himself. He was curious to know what they were doing that was so different from us. And what they are doing is very, very different from our approach, and the approach is a very humane approach where these men who have been convicted of some extremely serious crimes, we are not talking about check forging, have a key to their own cell. They can decorate it any way they want. They go to work off the prison grounds and they come back voluntarily. They can go home for the weekend and come back Voluntarily. So the tone of those prisons is certainly set at the top by the warden, but the guards treat the men as human beings and they actually say so. There are some films about Governor Malloy's trip there. So when he came back, he decided to pick two prisons to try to change the culture inside those prisons. And he has. He's no longer a governor but he has done a magnificent job and Robin's prison is the beneficiary. So right now, Robin is a mentor in this program and it's called the WORTH program. WORTH stands for Women Overcoming Recidivism Through Hard Work. <laughs> and um, she is very proud of her leadership role and the staff, she, she doesn't refer to the guards anymore as guards, she calls them staff. They work together collaboratively. That was never true before, never. She was led better, and that's the way they spoke to her by her last name. Never, never addressed by her first name. And just that alone has made such a difference. But the idea is if one of the women in the program is having a bad day or does something that's very unacceptable instead of punishing her or sending her into isolation immediately, which would be the case, Robin and the staff member come over to her and sit down with her and talk to her and say, what, what's going on today? What's, what's happening with you? And so this program certainly has changed the lives of the young women, but to me, more important, it has changed Robin's life. And Robin has said that she felt her own life had no value whatsoever, none, but now, she sees clearly the impact that she has had on these young women.
2: Wow, that's really powerful. And I'm curious, to what degree do you think programs like this one, um, the one they're doing in Connecticut, have the potential to reduce recidivism? That is the rate at which people end up returning to prison. Do you think programs like this can help reduce recidivism?
4: The the difference in terms of recidivism, I taught a class called Justice Around the World where I compared all, all aspects of what we do and what um, other countries do. And I think that one of the hu- huge differences besides the fact that I think uh, other countries um, treat their inmates in a more humane way is sentencing. There There aren't countries that give sentences of 605 years. I, I write to a woman who is serving a 605 year sentence. What's the point of that? What's the point of a hundred year sentence? What was the point of giving Robin at 14, a 50 year sentence? She was a child. So I think um, the hopelessness of a sentence that long, certainly, is, is a major factor uh, here. And if you feel you'll never get out, what motivation do you have to change your life? Whereas if you know there is um, a chance to get out and turn your life around, what a difference it might make. Um, and I also think programs offered inside the prisons, uh, classes, um, degree programs, that makes a huge difference as well. So. I, I think it, it's a it's a sea change when you learn about what's going on in other countries where in their criminal justice system is concerned. It, it's just so different and that I, I, we have so much we can learn from them if we want to.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also important to note that when it comes to issues around incarceration, This doesn't just affect people who are in prison. It also affects family members, loved ones, friends. Um, And I know you've done some work with people on the outside who are impacted by incarceration as well.
4: Yeah, I, I read somewhere that someone said when a person is sentenced to prison, the entire family is sentenced as well. And they are. There's no question about it. Some of these kids that I talk to Um, had never seen their parent outside of prison. The only time they ever saw them was in the visiting room of a prison. So a terrible way to grow up. And it it certainly um, has, you know, impacted them very, very much. So,
2: So I want to acknowledge that you and I met through a mutual friend of ours who is serving a long sentence. And I know that you correspond on a weekly basis with many people who are incarcerated, and I wonder if you could describe a little bit about what that's like and um, what kind of conversations you have and what those relationships mean to you.
4: It's very, very rewarding. I don't think I can ever know what it means on the other end to have someone to call if you have no one else at all. And a number of people that I have been writing to, and many who call, call me as well, um, sometimes, not always, but sometimes the only person that they can reach out to. And that's that's very sad when you think about that. There's no family, no friends, nobody out here. And I, I find that... Um, Our conversations are about books and politics. What is wonderful is many of the people that I write to and get telephone calls from, uh, they may not be out here, but they're curious to know what's going on. Um, I've bought subscriptions to magazines for them, The Nation, The Week, so that they can keep current.
2: I think that's great. And I also know that through your work with the Innocence Project of Florida, you helped to bring a play that had originated in New York down to Florida. And that play is called The Exonerated. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the importance of that
4: play. The play, for people who aren't familiar with it, was about six or seven death row exonerees, all of whom were put on death row but were innocent, and after years and years, some of them, 20 years pl- and counting, were taken off death row and were you know let, let out of prison. So what they did was interview 40 people and cut it back to just a handful and use their exact words that they had recorded they did not insert themselves into it in any way, shape or form. They wanted their words to speak for themselves. Um, and they just had a group of chairs on the stage and would um, you know, go from person to person, um, sharing the, their stories, uh, very moving play. When, when it first opened in New York City, they had the most famous actors that we all all know, uh, Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins, um, Danny Glover, just the list goes on and on. And they would read the words of these death row exonerees.
2: That's so interesting. And as we're recording this, vaccination has started to roll out in American prisons. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what you know about... What conflicts have come up during the pandemic in, in most American prisons, and uh, in general, what the response to COVID has been like in the prisons
4: that you're familiar with? Uh, right now, I think it's a very slow response. Um, I've asked our mutual friend about vaccines, and as far as he knows, nothing yet. And then I write to a woman in Virginia. She's already gotten her first vaccine. And then Robin was told they're going to be vaccinated. But I had a very sad loss of two very old friends, both from Greenhaven where I taught. They were old friends and good friends and it was very, very sad. So I I think it's a slow response because I I think the, the general feeling is why do we have to vaccinate people in prison? what for? They're the low men on the totem pole, but I think they should be vaccinated like all the rest of us.
2: Yeah, agreed. And I think in general with all of the restorative justice related work that you do, you figured out a way to take these stories and share them in a way that impacts people on a personal level, even if they don't know anyone who's incarcerated.
4: That's what is the most important thing is to be open to uh, reading and listening to people's experiences and stories and trying to educate people who maybe wouldn't care about this topic, maybe. And then if you tell them a personal story or you have someone on your program who has their own story to tell and that story changes someone's mind, then you've accomplished something. And I I think it comes down to changing one mind at a time. (laughs) I think if you do that, you've done a great deal.
0: Harriet Hendel, a restorative justice educator, working largely in Florida. Her podcast is called Pursuing Justice. You can hear more from her in the complete conversation Sarah Holtz had with her at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for our March 2021 episode peacetalksradio.com is where you go to find all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. There are now hundreds of them on all manner of peacemaking topics. So look for yourself at peacetalksradio.com. You'll find there are partial transcripts of our shows, photos of our guests, downloadable audio links, and links to other resources on each episode's topics. Also there is a donate button to click on to help support the work of our own nonprofit organization, which produces this program and brings it to you separate and apart from whichever station or platform you hear it on yourself, although we certainly hope you'll support those outlets too. In addition to support from people like you, we also get help from the Albuquerque Community Foundation, Ties Fund, and other generous family foundations that continue to support us. Thanks to KUNM at the University of New Mexico for its years of support as well. Nola Daves Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated, our nonprofit organization. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Sarah Holtz, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Music.